Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, a weekly collaboration where we bring you the very best bits of The Athletic and the square ball in one handy package. I'm Dan Moylan, and he writes, he tweets, and he loves a mean loft conversion. From The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Six years almost to the day since that loft conversion was completed. And it's you still know, watertight, that? is it? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, dis- despite Storm, whichever one it is this uh, week. 11 years since it was begun. That's correct. That is correct. And from the square ball, the most pessimistic Leeds fan you could ever hope to meet, it's Michael Normanson. Slightly more optimistic this week, but yeah, still. This is good. And the man who kept his head whilst everyone around was losing theirs, it's Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. That's me. Hello. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. You can access both pre-match and in-play markets when you download the Bet365 app, along with updates for all matches delivered instantly. You can personalise your bets via the app with the Bet365 Bet Builder. Create your own bet and bet on multiple scenarios right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. Get the app from the Apple App Store and Google Play right now. It's for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. And a reminder that you can get ad-free podcasts by subscribing to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount right now by using the code LEADSPOD. Well, as we suggested right there at the top of the podcast, everyone feeling a little bit happier now. Nerves seem to have settled, Phil. Have you sensed the change in mood? Yeah, you're right about Moscow. Voice of reason, and right as it turned out, pretty much what was, was asked for last week, Brentford and, and Bristol City. Brentford was, was one of those where you, you went with a bit of trepidation, but it did make everybody feel a hell of a lot better. And there's a definite sense at Ellen Road on Saturday of everybody being sick of having other teams treading on them, of people questioning whether it was all falling apart. Sick of having been this team who dominated the championship and now being a team who, who were being bullied by others. And you could feel it with the way the players played. You you could feel it with the way the crowd were right from the off. I, I thought it was really significant, the chanting in support of Casilla before the game kicked off. Because it, th- th- there was no doubt at all that he was the the kind of point of scrutiny in the team he was the point of scrutiny in that match and, and he was he was the guy who if it was going to go wrong on Saturday you felt it was probably going to come from him again and there were a lot of questions during the week about why Bielsa was sticking with him why he wouldn't drop him why he wouldn't give Mesley a chance when it, it seemed to everybody that a change was needed in that position but I, th- I think the crowd just realised before the game that it, it was what it was he, he was in the team and, and it, it was better to make him feel that they weren't going to be on his case rather than they were um, right from the outset and there were, there were chance for Bamford for the game which I thought did the same trick really the two players who were kind of under the, the most pressure and was probably most aware of public opinion being against them getting that little vote of confidence beforehand I did think it made a big difference I did think the atmosphere was was right from, from start to finish and Bristol City were blown away in a classic Bielsa blown away game which ends 1-0 could have ended about 6-0 but, but didn't but ultimately big result big performance and um, and a good week Regarding the crowd, that is one thing you can say is that we have to remember that Twitter is not the stadium because a lot of anxiety you know, goes round in circles, doesn't it? It all feeds off itself on Twitter and everyone gets all upset and, uh, and panics and anxious. But actually, when you get to the stadium, once you see the team sheet, OK, he's in the side... Leeds fans will get behind the players come hell or high water. I feel like it was a sort of a real declaration of faith in Bielsa more than Kassir, actually, because everyone you spoke to before the game was kind of saying, I can't believe he's in the team still. But then he came out on the pitch and everyone went, well, let's do this then, I suppose. If we're going to have him, we might as well make the best of him. And it's just that acceptance of Bielsa's ways, I think, has finally dripped through to people. I tried to do that on Tuesday night with a, a tweet. I think it was, uh, I don't don't care who's in goal, let's just win. And then he went and did that against Brentford, so I just kept quiet on Saturday and it it went better. (laughs) Well, you picked out your one to watch as Lee Johnson heading into the Bristol game uh, there, Phil. 
And uh, he was his usual animated self on the touchline, fair to say. He was also wearing football boots, which I think is these days quite out of order for a, a manager. I was speaking to um, Adam Hurry, who does our football cliches podcast and, and runs that, that really funny football cliches account on Twitter. And was saying to him, is this acceptable these days, manager in a pair of football boots? I don't know what you think, but I don't think so, really. It's all trainers with Bilic and, and Yap Stam and even Bielsa. You know, there's no sign of, of Adidas with him on, or not with studs on anyway. But it, it was classic Johnson up and down the touchline, animated through the whole game. Little complaint afterwards about the penalty, which it has to be said was definitely a penalty, but not given. But in fairness to him, he, he was he was pretty honest. Um, at the end of the game and and he knew they'd been outplayed he knew they'd never really been in it there were little points in the second half where it felt a bit more even and and it felt like they were were at least starting to get themselves up the pitch and to retain possession somewhere near to to Casilla but from Casilla's point of view it was the the game from heaven really they they were nowhere near him with the exception of the the Naki Wells shot in the second half and he needed that after what had gone before he needed it because it was what 60 mile an hour winds which seemed to be blowing in, in all directions but I thought that was pretty key as well that Leeds seemed to cope fine with the conditions which were, were horrendous but didn't really affect the performance and in the middle of, all, of it all you had Calvin Phillips who has been great in the last two games and looks like despite the, the sort of cost of that red card might actually have benefited from a, a couple of games off and might now be set for a, a big run in which would be a huge help but I mean he was just different class compared to every single player on the pitch um, even including Luke Ayling who had his best game in a long time on Saturday you can see in Phillips that kind of Premier League quality and when he plays like that there's just nothing you can do there's, there's no way of getting on the ball there's no way of retaining possession Brentford found it on Tuesday and it was exactly the same on Saturday On that we had a question actually about Phillips making the same point um, from Jake Hello fellas obviously Calvin Phillips was the best player on the pitch last night and was key to our increase in performance but do you think this was down to the fact that he'd had a few games of rest both mentally and physically it's got to be said that after Christmas he wasn't exactly Pete Calvin Phillips and what are your thoughts on if you think this is the reason for his rejuvenated performance last night cheers I think he probably has which isn't to say that anybody wanted to wanted him to draw that red card and isn't to say that he wanted to miss the three games but we we talk a lot about the fact that Bielsa doesn't rotate and that he he doesn't make changes in, in particularly in, in certain areas and where Phillips is concerned there isn't actually a replacement for him at the moment they, they had a go with Ben White which didn't really work and, and White didn't look comfortable there they don't have Forshaw now he's out for the season he isn't going to be back until the summer and there is no like for like replacement for Phillips there hasn't really been a like for like replacement for him since the start of Bielsa's tenure I mean Forshaw is as close as you get but I don't think he's as much of a, a natural defensive midfielder as, as Phillips is become um, Shackleton is far more attacking Dallas is very versatile but you know I, I don't see him as a as a centre mid at all I think now he's gone back to left back again he looks far more influential so it might be a good thing for Phillips that he's had that little breather and, and that he, he will be slightly refreshed for, for what's left of the season and it has to be said that those three games while they they didn't do Leeds any favours they didn't do immense damage in terms of the league position either so he's back with them in good shape and, and you know second place still um, and it can't be a bad thing I think he's back with a bit of an apology on his mind as well because one thing that he had to do while suspended is watch the three games that we watched when everybody started to think this is falling apart and apart from me and the one thing you know Calvin Phillips wants is to get promoted um, and probably what I mean they all want to get promoted don't they but he's the one who's had to separate himself from it watch see what's happening get the feeling away from the, the pitch and 
I wonder if it's a bit of a, as well as the physical reset and the, the playing reset, it's just a little bit of a, rem- a reminder of what's at stake and, and what actually needs to do. And so when he, had, he did come back in, it was noticeable what a big grin he had at the end of the, the Brentford game when he was interviewed. Glad to be back, glad to be playing well and maybe glad to like play the part in easing the pressure again because you can't do anything when you sat there. And on Calvin, but also on another player, we heard from a different Lee Johnson, but this time in Toronto. All right, boys. Obviously, things looking up after a couple of strong recent performances. I wanted to know if you guys shared my view that this is largely down to, to Calvin's return, but also, crucially, Dallas coming back and being able to go back into the fullback position. Do you think that Bielsa's learned from this and will be less tempted to play Stewart in midfield should we be short again in the future? Also, I mean, I can't shake the feeling that not getting adequate cover in midfield in January might come back and hurt us. How tall is this Lee Johnson? Because you you guys are, are normally pretty sharp on this subject. Uh, haven't measured him, uh, but I think that one is of full adult height. Right, okay, okay. Yeah. Which is interesting actually, because Phillips in midfield has a, a very good tendency of making players against him look like kids. Um, I thought that against Brentford and even more so against Bristol City, they looked like they were they were really struggling to keep up with him. Yeah, Phillips is, has made a, a huge difference, I think because he is a little bit fresher and, and I think because without him in that area, the system, it doesn't fall apart, but it's obviously weaker and that is such a key area um, in the team that Bielsa set up that when you don't have him there, they do tend to be more vulnerable at the back than they are with him sitting in and, and covering the, the defence behind him. I mean, there's one moment in the first half where Bristol City picked up the ball around about halfway and were trying to feed it out to the right. And he was just in the perfect position to intercept. He'd read the pass about four or five seconds before it came and had got himself over there. And that's what he does so well, aside from the tackling and the, and the spread of, of passing. He reads it really well. And it's actually a really difficult position to play because you have to be so aware of what's going on in, in so many areas around about you. Dallas, I mean, we, we touched on this in the last podcast that I do think it was a mistake not to sign another another midfielder in January. It's not necessarily a mistake that's going to cost them this season. We'll, we'll see when, when we get to May. But it did look like a fairly obvious area if Forshaw is absent, which he now is, for bringing somebody in and, and just adding a little bit more depth. I mean, I kind of felt that they were short of options anyway, even when Forshaw was fit. And they certainly looked short of options without him. Will he never play Dallas in midfield again? I suspect he probably will if um, circumstances necessitate it. And, and you know, he he seems to have a much higher opinion of Dallas at, at number eight or, or whatever he chooses to play him than, than some of us do. But Dallas, to me, is starting to look more and more like a fullback, a stroke wingback. Definitely better on the right than he is on the left. But when he plays on the left like he did against Bristol City, you would 100% keep him there ahead of Alioski and, and Barry Douglas. Looked solid, hasn't he, last couple of games. He's really settled down that back four. I think with Dallas, you get... You still get all the action bombing forward stuff that you get from Alioski, but without the quite the same level of insanity. And the, he sometimes has a bit more positional awareness that he knows if you're winning in the last minute, you don't need to necessarily be the furthest player forward and things like that. Douglas, when he's played there, he's never looked any better than all right, really, has he? That's the thing with him. He's just, he's just fine. He's, he's my main impression of Douglas. We lose a lot in attack, though. Um, and I think having, having Calvin back in the centre as well, it's like you're saying, it's his awareness of the stuff going on around him. I feel like when Ben White a step forward there maybe it's because he's used to playing at the back and only having to pretty much look forward on the pitch but Phillips just knows where everything is around him and he just he's able to just move forwards and backwards just to slot into a, a perfect spot every time Yeah it's interesting the rise of Shackleton now he's fit as well because one of the changes on Saturday if you were going to keep it tight would have been to take off it was Hernandez went off and you could have brought on Alioski and put Dallas into midfield and shut up that way but uh, Bielsa is now back to 
Shackleton is now my next reserve midfielder. I think because his injury problems like Tyler Roberts have been such an ongoing theme all season, you kind of forget that he's actually a, a very good player in there. Whether he's quite right to cover Phillips is a is another question, but he is the one that Bielsa has started turning to again, not for attacking reasons, but I think he's, he was brought on on Saturday to say, like, let's shore this up by bringing on a really rapid uh, little dynamo and just let him run about. He's very box-to-box, Shackleton, and, and I think that's the way he needs to play. So trying to sort of shoehorn him into the Phillips role or, or a slightly deeper central midfield role, it would be difficult longer term. I think it's fine, like Moscow says, for, for when he's coming off the bench, when you just need him to, to kind of tighten things up. But I think long term, if Shackleton is as good as we think he is, that'll be the, the way that he plays. With Dallas, you get borderline zero mistakes from Dallas. He, he didn't have a great day down at QPR, but that kind of stands out to me when he's played at fullback. Is one of the few days when you could see an argument for actually making a change there and, and putting somebody else on in, in place of him. And Bielsa did, mainly because Dallas had been booked. But I think in terms of discipline, he's probably top of the tree at Leeds. He, he does the right things at the right times. He makes so few errors, so few misjudgments. And a little bit like Phillips, he reads the game really well. He seems to know what to do at, at the right times. I don't think he's going to be player of the season, Dallas. I think he'll fall a little bit short of that. But I think he'll be in the discussion because he, he's been hugely influential in his own quiet way without ever having a specific position and without ever having a, a definite role. He's kind of been essential regardless of that. And, and while I think it prize will, will go to somebody else, he, he should definitely be in the running. So normally we record this podcast straight after the, the Thursday press conference, but we're doing it earlier in the week this week because of half-term childcare reasons, yes. rock, the rock and roll lifestyle that we all lead. That's right. So we haven't seen what Bielsa's looking like this week. However, in the post-match, Phil, did you sort of get the sense that he's looking a little bit more uh, zen about the whole thing? Well, I actually wasn't in the post-match because I was doing a piece over the weekend about a sporter from Ireland who had somehow managed to come to 13 games on Bielsa's watch and failed to see a a single victory and had very much got himself into the mindset or the complex of thinking that he was the problem and he was the unlucky omen and was finding these games not difficult to turn up to but was starting to wonder when on earth this run was going to break and obviously it did break on, on Saturday which um, which was great for him But Great for the story it, as well Well yeah no, it, it was it would, have, it would have worked either way but it was nice I mean his girlfriend Fiona did say to me um, it's a, a guy called Stephen Fitzpatrick he lives in Dublin he comes over with his, his father his, his girlfriend Fiona was saying that had they lost on Saturday he's, he's due to come over to the Huddersfield game and he would have been travelling on his own because I don't think she can take any more but it was funny speaking to him because he'd the games he'd been to were, for example, the Good Friday game against Wigan and the second leg of the playoffs against Derby. He'd been at the Wigan game recently. The The only game on the BLC he didn't come to when his dad did was the Spygate Derby win. So it was all building up and he was starting to think that, yeah, it, it was actually him. So I went to see him after the game and, and I gave um, Bielsa's press conference a swerve. But I think it was back to what we're used to from Bielsa, particularly after after victories all very sort of calm and, and understated and no need this time round to be picking fights or arguing the toss over anything at all I think he's been very happy with the last week his players have been very happy with the last week and it does it does feel as if this little period has, has ironed out a bit of the stress and a bit of the nervousness that was building in the background mm, certainly has for us I think and we are looking ahead to I mean the, the fixture list looks favourable but we've said that many times before with Leeds but Reading and Middlesbrough across the next seven days you'd have to fancy six points wouldn't you really you need six points I think if you if you're going up the fixture that jumps out is Fulham at home that looks by a long way the most difficult game on paper and in, in terms of the opposition 
Leeds wiped the floor with Reading in a in a classic one 0 win um, in November. It was one of those where if if Leeds weren't scoring, it was definitely going to finish goalless because at no point did Reading ever look like scoring themselves. They're coming off the back of a, a big win at Hillsborough, but it's hard to know what to read into that because Sheffield Wednesday seem to be having all sorts of problems at the moment. Monk seems to have lost control of certainly of the results. I don't know about the squad. I haven't followed too closely what's actually going on down there with the players and, and how his relationship is with them. But to look at the results, you would think that this probably can't go on too much longer before before the pressure's going to come to bear on him. It's a real shame. Yeah, I, I thought you'd be to be devastated about that and obviously in the background they've got this um, potential points deduction because it's a shame. Of the, it's a yeah, shame yeah again because of the the EFL action which begs the question of how is this season going to end for them I'm, I'm not entirely sure and, and also begs the question of whether Reading took advantage of a club who were there to be pasted or whether actually they've got more about them and, and will be a more difficult team to contain on Saturday or at least a more difficult team to beat than they were down at, at the Medeski despite the scoreline. I mean, I, I see this being very much like the Wigan game in that Leeds will pile it on. They'll have a lot of possession, they'll have a lot of the ball, they'll have a lot of chances. If they take them, they'll win. If they don't, they'll be prone to getting picked off in the way that Wigan picked them off. But you're right. At this stage, and, and after a, a good week against Brentford and Bristol City, this is one you have to win. I mean, they're 15th as it stands at the minute. You look ahead to Middlesbrough as well. No wins in six for them. And they're going back down towards the bottom of the form table and they've slid back to 18th in the real table. So maybe it's not lying or is it still lying? I can't remember which way which way well, it's going now. Well, they had that little bounce under Woodgate, didn't they? And it was good enough to win him the, the Manager of the Month award. But I still go back to the game in November, which I think is probably as poor a performance as I've seen from Championship side at Ellen Road in years, really. They comprehensively outplayed and, and never got into it but clearly after that Woodgate managed to get a grip and, and managed to work out how to reorganise his side to get them you know for in the short term out of trouble but they're sliding back into it and I think a little bit like Huddersfield and others they will be lucky to stay up if they do on the basis that there are some very very poor teams down the bottom of the division I think in other years they would be far more in the mix than they are at the moment and I do think Middlesbrough will will stay up ultimately but I think it will be close and again it just feels like that's a ground you could go to and exploit the crowd exploit the mood exploit what, what will be I think an air of nervousness and tension around the place and again yeah all things being equal you play well at Middlesbrough you should win but will we win? This is the big uh, $64,000 question. Well, I'd rather not predict that because I, I invariably get these things wrong a little bit like promotion. And I know Moscow's already confirmed that we'll, that leads are going up. But I will I will back off from that and say probably. I mean, it's hard not to be optimistic having just played Bristol off the park. But then you you see this division. You see what happens to Fulham on the weekend. The easy games are not always the easy games, are they? You'd, you'd look down their fixture list and go... Well, Fulham have got such a tough run in, apart from Barnsley at home, which they'll obviously win, and then they go and get spanked. So I think we might win, but I don't want to really say. <laughs> you coward. What about you, Moscow? You'll say it, won't you? I will say it. There's nothing to fear from them. I did just have a look at the, the stats on Reading at Sheffield Wednesday. Reading had four successful passes into Sheffield Wednesday's penalty area. I mean, that's not hammering a team. That's being up against a really poor team and winning, isn't it? And then, Which you contrast with 20 shots on goal for Leeds on Saturday against Bristol. Which is the other end of the well, spectrum, you would, never, you would never have had Sheffield Wednesday reading down as a classic, really, no. would you? Well, even then, Sheffield Wednesday only had four passes into their penalty area. So you're talking 90 minutes of football with eight passes completed into either penalty area, <sighs> which is pathetic. And when we went to uh, Reading the performance down there they didn't complete one pass into our penalty area that's been my favourite stat of the entire season is how how did teams get into uh, our penalty area because generally they don't and here's one of my favourite quotes of the, the season recently Jonathan Woodgate 
uh, Luton at the weekend where they lost. I said to them at halftime, the positive is you can't play worse than that. Actually, they did. <laughs> so I feel like it's coming for us. What the, uh, the wasn't, it wasn't meant to be a challenge. There's a career in motivational speaking if this doesn't work out, yeah. <laughs> the vibe in uh, from Middlesbrough fans on Twitter seems to have been that that good run came when they had loads of injuries and suspensions and he, he, he had to name the team he was naming. And the one comment said, as soon as he's had any tactical input, we've gone to shit again. So I think we'll be fine. Mailbag is open then. If you want to get in touch with us, you can go to thesquareball.net forward slash WhatsApp and leave us a voice memo. We've got absolutely tons of them. Thank you to everybody who uh, who got in touch via WhatsApp. So we'll play a selection of the questions that have come in now in this Q&A. And let's start off then with Abby's question. I know a lot of people are wondering why Pervader isn't on the bench. So I wanted to ask Phil whether Bielsa has ever planned to use him this season or if he's just one for the future. I think we all saw him as a bit of a cause for excitement when he came in. But do you think we can expect him to make any sort of impact at all? I know Bielsa has said that he has two defenders, two attackers and two strikers on the bench and that's why Perveda isn't there. But why isn't he being chosen, especially over someone like Stevens? Has Bielsa been impressed with him? Can we expect him to be back on the bench in the coming weeks? Why haven't we seen Perveda yet then, um, Phil? We tried to get this out of Bielsa last week. Because it is odd. He came in and, and kind of followed the opposite trajectory to Jean-Kevin Augustine, which is that he was on the bench immediately for the, the first two games. And Stuart Dallas actually said that he'd been as impressed with Paveda as he had with anybody coming into the club. Impressed from the point of view of how quickly he was able to adapt and to settle into the squad and, and to look like he was to look like he was up to speed and ready to play. And in the two games that followed, he, he was nowhere to be seen and obviously wasn't on the bench again at the weekend. And Bielsa's explanation for it, as um, as Abby said there, is that when he constructs his bench, he likes to have two defenders, two midfielders, two strikers, although I think strikers probably translates more as attacking players rather than out-and-out centre-forwards. And that essentially um, Perveda was kind of the odd one out when it came to the, the midfield choices or the attackers, depending on how Bielsa sees him. But Abby's right to kind of mention Stevens because you, you made the assumption that Pereira coming in would be, if not ahead of players in the starting lineup, would when it came to the bench, would be ahead of people like Stevens, would be ahead of a, lo- a lot of the 23s. And particularly because Bielsa did seem so so sold on his condition and um, and his talent when he when he first came in. It is slightly peculiar. I mean, he, he is definitely one of the one for the future because of his age and you know he's he was a 23 at Man City he'll, he'll, he'll get games with the 23s while he's here and I don't think there was any expectation that he was going to come in and play ahead of Harrison or ahead of Costa or ahead of you know Hernandez if um, if Hernandez was playing out wide but you know the club did say he's coming as a as a first team player essentially it's not to say he's going to be used a hell of a lot um, initially but he's not coming as a 23 in the way that say um, um, Elia Capriol the, the keeper who came in from Kievo has been you're not going to see him in the squad or certainly not until Casillas banned and, and they need back up on the bench you know he did come to play for the academy so with Paveda it is slightly odd and I am a little bit confused as to why he's not been in the picture and I did think that he was somebody that would offer you impact off the bench if you needed it but then I think back to the way Bielsa works and Bielsa just isn't really a impact player from the bench type of manager. It's not that he doesn't want players from the bench to make a difference, but as we've found out already, he doesn't look at Augustine and think to himself, well, even if he's not ready and even if he's not up to it, he might nick one from six yards because he's a great finisher. And likewise with Paveda, you know, I, I don't think he's inclined to say, 
if he's not ready or if I don't feel for, for whatever reason that, that I want him in the squad it's not enough that he might come up with one bit of magic um, in the 87th minute and, and that will cure everything else it does seem to be pretty formulaic with Bielsa and if you fit you fit and if you don't you don't and at the moment um, Paveda doesn't seem to fit into the 18 and there's that anecdote that you've mentioned before uh, Moscow on one of our podcasts recently about the goalkeepers in Chile where he sat them down and said you're all equal in my eyes so there's no favouritism within the squad to a certain extent anyway I think it might be about the jobs he's doing we were talking about Jamie Shackleton coming on and he's he's being used defensively as much as anything else even though he is quite an attacking player and it's it's right and since the days of Jack Clark coming on for Harrison at half time every match last season we've not been changing things to try and win Bielsa trusts his starting 11 that Costa and Harrison and Hernandez will make enough chances that we'll be able to score. And I think the the change for Bamford and Augustine is maybe as much just freshening up because it seems to happen on the same minute every match. So it's like we'll just get somebody fitter up front. Stevens comes on when he does come on to kind of tackle the opposition as much as to make anything happen. And I've not seen anything from Pervader that suggests to me that he's going to be launching himself into tackles and really closing down the, the opposition to do a defensive job. He's all about skill and tricks and making things happen in the, the final third. So... Somebody did say that he's he was brought in to replace Jack Clark, and to that extent, he's doing an absolutely perfect job <laughs> of that so far. But um, it kind of is. I think he he maybe is around for if Harrison gets injured, then the queue everybody moves up one, and then he's he's back involved. But until then, um, he's a a young lad, and there's a certain sense of opportunism with the way Victor Orta works. You can't get a signing in under the radar, particularly in January with all the the focus that was on it without it looking like a massive deal. But it was also the fact that Man City were willing to let him go and he was available. So it was like grab him while he was there, whether he was going to play the the rest of the season or not. It's just that thing of him being on the bench and then being not on the bench is a bit of a mystery. But who knows, maybe Jordan Stevens was, we only found out about Robbie Gotts' injury six weeks on when I think uh, Bielsa... I think you might have been a little bit gutted that somebody finally asked him about that. Thought he might have got got away with nobody ever knowing that he had a, a muscle injury. There could have been something like that as part of the reason why he, he got on there. It got to the stage with Gotts where everybody wanted to know what was going on, but the presses were starting to run out to an hour and they were becoming very fractious and fraught. And there never seemed to be an opportune moment to say, what about Robbie Gotts? You know, where, where is, where's Robbie? But yeah, it turns out that, that he is injured. People talk a lot with Bielsa about the, the kind of Crespo, Batistuta, combination that never quite was under Bielsa he didn't want to play both he he wanted one centre forward up front in the way that that Leeds play as well but I always think more of an indication about the way he thinks and the way he works is Raquel May in Argentina who he was just never interested in because Raquel May was from that old breed of kind of Argentinian playmaker who did his own thing who, who went his own way like Maradona and in order to have him in the team it needed to be all about him and from Bielsa's viewpoint you just cannot have a player like that in the type of team that he likes to build. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think individuals come into it, which isn't to say that Bielsa doesn't like individual players, doesn't rate individual players or doesn't see their specific talent. But, I mean, you, you made the comparison with Harrison. Could Pervader replace Harrison? Even if you take out the kind of occasional criticism of Harrison's crossing and his, his accuracy in, in those situations and the number of assists he comes up with and the feeling that, that he could definitely do more from, from out wide... I would love to have seen his running stats from Saturday. And unfortunately, with things like Scout, you don't get the details of how far um, Harrison Harrison would have run, uh, how many sort of individual sprints he would have made, all, all that 
type of thing. But the amount of running he does is almost impossible to replicate. And it would be a huge challenge for Paveda to come in and to do what Harrison does because Harrison just never stops and never looks like he's going to stop and never looks like he's he's running out of energy. And that is as much what Bielsa is looking for as he is the, the sort of cultured deliveries from the left. Don't get me wrong, it would help if there were more cultured deliveries from the left. But ultimately, that is not the, the priority for him. And they trust Harrison to patrol the entire left wing sometimes when they make subs and imbalance the formation a little bit. So it says a lot about what he brings to the side where you think maybe Pervader might be something of a luxury compared to that at the moment. Yeah, I, I've gone from last season wondering really whether Harrison would be a particularly shrewd investment to thinking that the £8 million option they've got on him would be very good value at the end of the season. And, and he has got better in Bielsa's second season, which suggests that he could get better again in his third season. And you're right. I always think back to the game earlier in the season where, where he essentially, I think it was Blackburn or QPR, where he did play as a left-back and a left-winger with virtually no support on that side of the pitch and, and kind of did it without breaking sweat. And you have to have those players in this Bielsa team. You can't really sacrifice that in favour of Flair, which Bielsa never would anyway. But I think despite the feeling that it would be nice to have a size in there or you know it would be wonderful to have a, a Raquel May-esque playmaker, would it work and would it, would it really into the, the ethos of the way the team play I'm not so sure it would There was a moment on Saturday we don't have his running stats but they, we can see what happens when he, he ran from halfway into the penalty area dribbled around couldn't get a cross in Bristol came out with the ball and he chased back to halfway and fouled them on halfway to stop the, the counter-attack and when you think about Leeds being strong in midfield the way that we have been against Brentford and against Bristol City, a big part of it is the fact that him and Helder Costa and uh, Stuart Dallas and Luke Ayling all come in there to do those jobs so if you took that out and you had Pervader, I mean, we're assuming that he wouldn't do that. Maybe he could run all day the way Harrison does, but even Harrison wasn't doing that last season. It's taken some time for him to get the hang of it. You're almost, you're taking out a central midfielder and a left back and a left winger. And he sometimes looks like a striker as well. He gets involved there. And not even in different phases of play all at once, just because he runs around the pitch like that, it would be a big miss and a big ask for anybody else to try and do that job. Let's move on to a question now then from Connor. All right, lads. Will there be a second season of the Amazon Take Us Home documentary? Do Amazon still have cameras filming? What's going on with that? Cheers. My gut feeling is probably not. They were very much on the scene with cameras at the start of the season and I've seen less and less of the guys who, who filmed season one since sort of October, November time. I think that the feeling at the club is that this might end up being a documentary that isn't actually that interesting. I know you're about to have the Casilla FA case, which, you know, is not going to be very flattering. And when it comes to rubber necking and car crash viewing, you know, kind of ticks that box to a degree. But there was just a sense of actually, there's a risk of it being boring. You know, they're the winning game after game, they're losing some games, but ultimately that's football and that's the way a season ebbs and flows. And you might well get the big celebration at the end of it if leads go up, but that'll be episode six. And what's going to be in episode one, two, three, four and five that is going to be worth, that isn't just going to replicate the first season and kind of focus heavily on, you know, the changes Bielsa has made, the, the difference he's made to the atmosphere and, and the kind of culture around the club. It, it's not... You know, that hasn't changed and it's not that that isn't there, it's just that it's been done no, you're right. already. Yeah. So you, you're not going to get a Sunderland Netflix epic that leaves you thinking, what an absolute mess and a shambles. There's, there's no shambles real... That is. And you, you always look for a, a hook to hang it on. There's nothing really to hang it well, on, is there? Because Bielsa's not new. We've had a couple of signings, but really... You it, do. So, for example, um, the Manchester City documentary, they had access to the, the dressing room right the way through. So you got to see 
Guardiola in full flow at half time, at full time before games. You got to see how it is that he he actually acts and whether or not people find the players and managers find themselves putting it on a little bit when the cameras are first there. You're not going to do that over the course of a whole season. So you do see how Guardiola acts naturally. There's simply no way in the world that Bielsa would have allowed cameras into the, the dressing room. I mean, he was so resistant to doing anything on camera himself last season that it was literally a, a kind of last-ditch interview with him at Thorpe Arch, which he didn't want to do at all, but you know, agreed to kind of over his dead body and ultimately gave them a little bit of audio at the end but was so resistant to it that, that really they'd almost have been better off not bothering and and I think by that stage it kind of reached the conclusion that they weren't going to get anything from him so they'd need to, to work around it yeah I mean fr- from his perspective there's simply no way that he, he would have allowed any filming in the dressing room that, that hasn't changed this season and, and it wouldn't have changed so it's not to say that it wouldn't be a you know, a worthwhile documentary and, and good to watch. I just don't think it'll be particularly memorable and there might be a feeling that when all said and done, in terms of the sort of products that you want to sell to people, is it really at the right level? Is it, is it really what people are looking for from mm. a football documentary given that there are so many these days? I'm, I'm loath to say that they're boring because they, they really aren't but I think in documentaries like that you do need Delph smashing the door off the hinges. You do need Darren, and I'm not making light of this, but you do need Darren Gibson you know, writing off various cars, drink driving, because that is, you know, for better or worse, what adds adds the colour and, and what, what makes people people watch it. And, and Leeds under Bielsa have, with the exception of Spygate and, you know, with the exception of Dan James and, and now Casilla, it's been a pretty placid club, in, mm. you know, in his time here. I guess there's the, the angle as well of Angus Kinnear saying we're not dicking around with the playoffs, which has been thrown back in his face somewhat yeah. when things have gone badly this season and the risk still remains that that could be a spectacular backfire come May. Massively. Um, although, again, I don't think it's enough to hook a, a six-episode season. I mean, in terms of re- think, reluctance I, to do it, though, yeah, maybe. No, no I, that's, that is true. And I, I suppose that is one way in which you, you could follow it up. But that is probably the sort of thing that would have a club kiboshing the idea of season two anyway. I mean, I saw Liam Cooper at the, at the premiere for episode one which was um which was at the, the everyman cinema in leeds when it was released and and i asked him i said you know did, were you not concerned having you, you must have seen the sunderland documentary to which he said yeah you know i have i said were you not concerned when they first started filming that if it got to the stage where it was all going horribly wrong under bielsa and you were fighting with each other or there were off field issues were you not worried about your kind of dirty laundry been aired in public and he said well you'd kind of like to think that the club would just have pulled the plug if it was getting out of hand like that which is probably true and if you they've got any sense as a club you think you would do that I mean to, to give you another example BBC Scotland at the moment are about to do a documentary on Hart Midlothian and they've been following this season Hearts are bottom of the table and have you know on to their second manager have, have been a, an all round mess and obviously I'm, I'm a supporter of the club and it's very hard to see how that's going to be a, in any way flattering portrayal of what's been going on at Tynecastle. Now, a lot of people who watch it will probably love the documentary for that very reason. But from the club's perspective, is it a good idea? I don't think it is. So I can't imagine that the club would want to do season two to kind of flag up Kinnear's comment about not dicking around in the playoffs. I think that comment is going to be for the likes of me to write about if ultimately they end up dicking around in the playoffs again. I go back to what I said really what is there going to be in season two that is going to have people on the edge of their seats apart from hopefully the very end of it and the, the conclusion when they go up? And we saw a lot of Andrea Radrazzani in that particular documentary and a question that flows from that, I guess, about his appearance outwardly has come in from Barney about his tweets. 
Hi, lads. Recently with um, Radz's tweet, has the club ever said to Radz to ease down a bit with the tweets? Because it's just starting to create a divide on social media, unfortunately. Cheers. Yes, I think it is suggested from time to time that it might be a good idea if he did refrain from tweeting so much and did refrain from tweeting in circumstances that were likely to goad or upset people on, on Twitter. I'm kind of all for players managers, owners picking the moment to reply to, to certain messages, certain tweets that come at them. I think Liam Cooper probably just about got it right after the Brentford game when somebody tweeted saying the players seem to have found their balls again and he kind of replied, and I agree with this, that that was never really the problem. They were just in a bit of a hole where things were going wrong and everybody was getting a little bit tense and they weren't playing particularly well. But like Bielsa says, if, if you actually watch the way they play, they are still taking the same risks and they are still doing the same things. It just felt like they were managing to find themselves more cul-de-sacs than they had um, previously and were obviously making mistakes at the back as well. So there are times when that's a good thing to do and there are times when it's justified. I think Radrazani makes the mistake too often of inciting people by suggest. I mean, for example, the, the tweet which talked about haters and, and kind of suggested that there was almost that there was this kind of feeling that actually it is going wrong and because it's going wrong, it's a good opportunity for us to criticise everybody. Misjudge the mood, I think. I think there has been a huge amount of support of the players and, the, and Bielsa and everybody else over the past year and a half and people have done their best to stick stick with it when it's been difficult and you have the backdrop of 15 years when so many people have, have let the support down so regularly and, and so consistently and, and I always think whenever you as an owner or a, a player you're going to tweet or you're going to have a go you have to factor that into your thinking and you have to remember that this is one of the most long-suffering fan bases certainly of the, the bigger clubs in England but you're still getting sell-out crowds and you still are getting crowds who give Casilla that little vote of confidence before the game on Saturday and, and the same with Bamford and, and are doing their best to be there when they, they need to be and I honestly don't think it's ever a good look for an owner to be taking them on but yes to, to answer that in long and short people do suggest to him that he might refrain from tweeting but ultimately he owns the club and it's his call our argument was basically you weren't there was all we, we said about him when he, when he kind of goes on about these things as if everyone's being unreasonable we've seen a lot of unreasonable stuff from Leeds, served up by Leeds United so Maybe allow people to worry. Yeah, and just, if you can, it's difficult sometimes, but just completely ignore it. Shout the odds when you get promoted. That's my feeling. Just keep your powder dry until the end of the season. If you can tweet in a way which helps the players, takes the pressure off the players, or and, and don't get me wrong, the Radrazani tweets did kind of divert attention from them. All of a sudden it was like lightning rod towards him. But I don't think it was done in a way which particularly helped anybody and I don't think it was done in a way which improved the mood at all. I just think if, if you're that confident of going up and if, you, if you're that confident in your strategy and, and what you've done, wait until May and then if in May when you've gone up you feel the need to settle a few scores or to, you know, to pick a few fights, then go for gold. Better still... Show a bit of dignity and show a bit of class. Don't pick fights with anybody. Just enjoy the fact that you've got promoted, as everybody around here will do if it does happen. I don't think there's an inherent wish at Leeds and, and amongst the supporters to fight with people and to fall out with people. Certainly not their own players and and you know their own staff. But there is a lot of tension around here, and there is a lot of you know historic disillusionment about the way this club is run and, and the way the way things operate and yes it was a very very good season last season but it did end with Leeds going into another championship year and that ultimately is the problem I don't think Twitter's the place Radrizzani needs to look for that confidence boost or that total support if when we do get promoted in May 
if he goes on Twitter expecting an outpouring of love and appreciation, he'll probably get that. But I just hope he doesn't see the one or two tweets that say, well, we would have been up last season if you'd signed Daniel James, because they'll be there, because it's Twitter. He's never going to get from it, I think, what he seems to want, which is this unconditional support and appreciation and people understanding he's put £100 million into the club and nobody understands the, the work that he's done. Ultimately... I don't think anybody on Twitter cares about that. So even when we're promoted and he goes back, you see all the work I've done, I have given you promotion, he will still get a certain number of tweets saying the opposite just to piss him off because people will think it's funny. And if he's not if he's not able to, to cope with that, then maybe just celebrate in another way. Put the phone in a drawer and have a party. You have to accept as well that no matter how much money you spend and how much you revolutionise the club or change it or invest in it or whatever else, the levels of appreciation from the support are always going to be highest for the head coach and the players. And that's a fact. And Chilino was always really bad at accepting that. He hated the fact that when things were going well, it focused on Redfern or it focused on Gary Monk or whoever else. He was much better with Monk actually at accepting that. And that was probably in part due to the fact that he was starting to get into the process of trying transferring shares to Radrazani and, and he was on the way out. But I know that he did resent the kind of lack of appreciation for him when things were going well. Not that they went well particularly often, but when they did. Because he would sit back and say, it's my money that's going into this club. It's me that's paying for this. It's, I'm the one who's taking the risk and taking on all the liabilities from GFH. You know, why don't the, the supporters love me? And there, there were additional reasons why the supporters didn't love him. But it does ultimately come back to the, the fact that this will be seen as Bielsa's triumph more than anybody else's and after Bielsa it will be seen as the player's triumph and I think that's fair enough which doesn't mean that you disregard what Radrazani's done and it doesn't mean that Radrazani shouldn't get any praise or any, any credit but he shouldn't go fishing for it either because that's just not the way football works and whether that's fair or unfair is, is for him to say but that's just how it is Are we suggesting for one second that maybe millionaires are giant man babies that are a little bit insecure is that what it is? Well millionaires <laughs> probably have egos like everybody else and probably like to have those egos tickled and I think the reason you see a lot of millionaires on Twitter and particularly you know when it comes to football clubs is because when things are going well you do get a lot of nice things said about you and you do get a lot of very appreciative tweets but as we discussed on a prior podcast when I was kind of suggesting that it might be a good idea for footballers never to be on Twitter ever there's no middle ground nobody ever says to Radrazani you're, you're doing a decent job you and, and leaves it at that it is either great it's either dreadful and that swing always comes with results results always dictate the way that swings with the odd exception of things like the badge and Myanmar you know it is the football that dictates how, how popular you are but when you employ somebody like Bielsa and he is a bit of a love story, Bielsa, and, and the supporters here have gone with that as well. That's where the attention is going to focus when, when they go up. And nobody should resent that. And nobody should be, you know, should be unhappy about that. But people will have to accept it. Bielsa, for his part as well, will completely downplay his own role in it. Of course it. he will. He will he will try his best to give credit to Andrea, to Victor Orta, to the groundsmen, <laughs> to the to the people who've who've helped, you know, to fix the swimming pool at the training ground. They will all be due for credit ahead of him when it when the time comes. Which will make all the fans double down on him even more. Exactly. <laughs> of course. I mean we are inevitably gonna have a ridiculous press conference where if Leeds go up, where we try to ask questions of him or ultimately to tell him that this is in large part down to him, he'll deny having any responsibility for this whatsoever. He'll, he'll credit the players 
in the main and the club in general and then we'll just kind of disappeared quietly out the door in, in the way the way that he does Some, somebody was saying to me that after his very first game against Stoke um, the 3-1 win he dedicated it to the ground staff just because the pitch had been nice and they'd played well on it and you know it's that's his way and sometimes it, it Sometimes it's like the lady protesting a bit too much. You know, there, there are times where you think you must secretly be thinking, you know, this is down to me, and yeah, I've done a good job here and everything else, but never say that publicly. Well, I mean, I've fantasised about a, um, a glorious day against Charlton in early May, and Leeds being promoted, and the ground is singing Marcelo Bielsa's name, and he's nowhere to be seen. The pitch is chaos. All the players are there with families and kids, and Bielsa's just probably scuttled off down the tunnel and he'll come out, he'll wave because he won't want to take any of the plaudits then he'll disappear again, something like that. He'll shake hands with Lee Boyer and then because he's kind of distracted by everything else that's going on, you'll suddenly realise that he's not there and, and he's not part of it. I think you'll find it difficult not to get a bit more involved in that. I think even he will feel it when it when it happens, but he will do his best to keep as low a profile as possible. And he is, in the main, out, out with the, the long press conferences that kind of draw a lot of attention to him and, and not... I don't think that's his... He's specifically trying to do that. It's just the way it works. He's a good example to players and managers and owners about how to act in public, which is to say as little as you as you need to and to kind of worry as little about your general profile as you can. If it wasn't for those press conferences, we'd never hear from him. He's, <laughs> no, he's forced and, into speaking to us and, and otherwise, if he didn't have to, and it's not a criticism of him, but he just wouldn't. You can but, tell he hates it, can't you? <laughs> and us. <laughs> and the, the the last title he won, uh, Velez Sarsfield, very different to the Newell's celebrations where we have the Leeds Carrasco thing that's, that people look at that. Velez, he, uh, the last minutes of the game, he basically goes and stands by the tunnel and you can see all the photographers right. crowding around him trying to get it. As soon as the final whistle goes, turns, gone. And then you don't see him until... And then that's when he did the, uh, the interview afterwards dedicating it to his brother, which he then <laughs> rescinded years later. Yes, he rescinded years later. Phoned him up, said I shouldn't have done that. That my ego came up. So, so he may do something, but he, he'll probably do something at least that he regrets. Does he enjoy it? Like, because you, you think you're in football for the success, and part of you thinks, will he actually enjoy the success when he gets it, or does he live for the process? I think the process is is what he really enjoys. And I mean, just to go back to you saying if, if there were no press conferences we'd never hear from him when he leaves Leeds I don't expect to ever see him again or, or speak to him and I think if I walked past him in the street he would probably smile in the way that he does smile at people politely and just carry on I don't think there would be any chance at all of us stopping and chatting on about that remember that press conference where you looked like you were going to jump over the table and start <laughs> fighting us I, I don't th- you know I don't think there'll, there'll be any of that and, and actually I'm, I'm coming around to the conclusion that this might well be his last job in football full stop I'd I sort of wonder whether there's going to be anywhere left for him to go after this one emotionally and and professionally. He might feel feel like he's done. But there certainly seems to be that kind of social awkwardness with him that I think makes him difficult to look like he enjoys it in the way that that people do. And and there's definitely a a kind of obsessional streak with him where he applies himself so rigidly and, and devotes so much time to the jobs he takes on that you do sometimes wonder if it's possible to really enjoy it and whether he does... You know, whether enjoyment is the word for him. But I think in his own way, he loves the process. He loves the coaching of players. He, he loves seeing players improve and, and better themselves. I think more than anything, he enjoys seeing players who perhaps haven't 
done well before or, or perhaps have been at a low ebb at the club coming out of the shell so your, your cliques and your coopers and guys like that I think that gives him immense satisfaction and, and needless to say the academy development does as well but I know why you ask that because there are times where I look at him and think I, I can't tell whether you're you're really enjoying this and I don't mean the past few weeks because ev- evidently he hasn't been enjoying the past few weeks because the results haven't been good and, and the pressure's been on but even in the runs of seven wins on the bounce normally with managers as much as they, they play the whole don't get too high when you win, don't get too low when you lose line, you can see the little twinkle in their eye and you can see the kind of spring in their step. He, he just never changes and his, his body language and his, his kind of personality is is exactly the same. So I think it's a it's a kind of strange love for football that, that he's got, but he's utterly, utterly addicted to it. I think mm. he's learned some of what... I love drawing the parallels between Howard Wilkinson and Marcelo Bielsa and... Bielsa has talked about what he's learned from the highs and that they, if you do have the high of victory, the euphoria, it soon gives way to, because you lose the next game and you, that's the nature of football is you, all you do is you win and then you have to play again. And that's something Howard Wilkinson said to us in the Do You Want to Win film was that when they did win the title, it was the first moment. He didn't really know what to think because he was like, well, you don't have another game to plan for. So he he had nothing in his mind because usually you're thinking about how do you win the next game? But even... Prior to that, he'd uh, he learnt from the Sheffield Wednesday promotion to Division 2 in the, the mid-80s. He saw a photograph of himself afterwards. He said he looked like he'd just been let out of a prison camp. <laughs> and you can see what he means. When you find those photos and you see the footage of it, he just looks absolutely shell-shocked by the fact that they've done it. And he said it wasn't healthy and he couldn't do that again. So when Leeds won at Bournemouth, everybody else got on a bus back to Leeds and they were in town by uh, that night. He went to a, a mate's house in the, the New Forest where they had a, a, a big garden secluded from everybody and he said he woke up next morning, um, he'd had dinner and he'd had wine, woke up the next morning, birds singing, sun shining, not a care in the world, but no big, massive party with everybody and he hadn't put himself into a, and I think he would have done that if we'd not gone up as well, he just worked out a better way of of coping that is not um, that's not Frank Lampard at the the playoff semi final last season. Which you know, when it comes down to it, for a football manager, it's kind of a it's a waste of energy, particularly in Lampard's case because they won nothing. And then the same in when we won the Division One title, Howard Wilkinson Sunday lunch, not watching the Man United Liverpool game, score updates from his son, and then when they won, right, I'll have a bottle of champagne and enjoy it now. But just trying to take a step back from all that stress because those moments aren't I don't think it's what Bielsa maybe just got it all out of his system and you was old boys that meant everything to him and then ever since then it's just it's work I think what impresses me more about Bielsa is that it must be very difficult to be in a job like that and to be as socially awkward as as he is and most managers are very charismatic and you know, like to have a bit of a laugh and a joke or like to portray themselves in, in a certain light. And and obviously every day you're dealing with a lot of players who, you know, have egos and personalities as well and, and you're having, having to deal with that. I mean, he, he isn't close to the players in, in any way and and he doesn't particularly joke on, particularly joke on with us, doesn't joke on with us at all. We had a, a press conference last season where he came in before Slim Lamrani, who was a little bit late and was made to feel like he was a little bit late. Um, and he just sat quietly and looked at the desk until Lamrani came in and then sat to chat on with us. But we'll give you as much time as you want. I mean, we'll literally sit there and answer every question until until we dry up. And I think it's easy to underestimate how difficult it must be to be 
a football coach without, you know, the kind of flamboyant, outgoing personality that, that a lot of top level elite coaches have. And it's one of the reasons why why I do respect him, because I think it's not easy for him to do these jobs. And I, I think it, it is a, a big challenge and probably a big challenge for his, his personality. And particularly at Leeds, the way in which he's managed to create this atmosphere and, and culture around the place without using the media to do it, without particularly using his own personality to do it, is really impressive. And speaking of coaches then, let's imagine a dreadful alternative reality where Marcelo Bielsa doesn't come to Leeds. Uh, Tom asks this. Hi guys, I'm rereading an old article on 442 where you say that uh, Leeds had contacted coaches of a similar ilk, but one of the alternatives made the wrong impression by struggling to name a single player in the squad. Can you reveal who that was now and what we might have faced without having Bills for in charge? Thank you. The coach, I'm told, was Claudio Ranieri. And you shouldn't mistake this that answer by thinking that Ranieri was about to take charge of Leeds or was seriously considering it. He was on the list when Leeds were talking about replacing Heckenbottom, but it was one of those names on the list that was highly unlikely and realistically was, was never going to happen. You could, I suppose, you could have said the same about Bielsa, really, but and and in the end, Bielsa did. But but Ranieri was was no go. But I, yeah, I am told that in, in terms of the squad at Leeds, he had very little idea of who was there, um, of of what he'd be picking up, and and I don't think would have been rushing to retain players in the way that that Bielsa was, and Bielsa ultimately did. Whereas when they went to Argentina to to meet with Bielsa, he had these dossiers on each individual player he'd watched them to the nth degree so he was able to say him yes him no a full list of who he wanted to stay who full list of who he, he wanted to leave and that was even before they, they'd signed a contract so there is a big contrast there although I would suggest that Bielsa probably goes to excessive lengths in comparison to, to most managers I think most managers would certainly do background um, on squads they were thinking about taking on and, and would do plenty of analysis of it but probably not to the um, to the extremes that he did it is interesting to think about who else we might have got, if not Bielsa, because it doesn't feel like we were going for another hecking bottom. Like they were thinking about Ranieri, Conti was in the mix, wasn't he? And they're shooting for Martinez and all these names that are complete. I, I the think sky, in, the, but... in the mix is probably a bit generous with Conti, but yeah, it was Radrazani named him at one point in yeah. um, Gazette Adela Sport, I think. But again, you can put that in the Ranieri. Ranieri bracket. But it did feel the fact that that's what they were thinking was that we were going to do a complete 180 from hecking bottom. So whoever came in would if they'd have pulled off what they were imagining they could, was going to be some sort of big name, some kind of statement in the championship, rather than another Christiansen or another Heckenbottom, which would have been, it could have been somebody interesting. You can piece it all together though, but also knowing that much about the squad and being able in, in five or six weeks over the summer to turn them into, say, to you know, annihilated Stoke and then went to Derby and beat them comfortably and, and were pretty much top two for the whole of last season. You can see how it happened and you're sometimes tempted to think that it's just down to his kind of managerial coaching genius, but actually it's down to an, an awful lot of hard work as well. And, and coming in prepared did make a, a huge difference. And I think anybody coming in cold, picking up that squad and trying to work out what to do with it would have been in a bit of trouble. Kiko Casilla, we should have an update this week then, Phil. Yeah, and potentially the hearing will finish this week and we might be aware of his punishment if there is any at the end of the week. Um, it's taken a long time to come round this. You're almost five months on now from the game at Charlton and for anybody who forgets the background, he was accused in the second half of racially abusing Jonathan Lickle, who was the Charlton forward um, on loan from West Brom at the time. The hearing will take place 
probably over two days this week. Um, from what I was told, it, it was likely to finish on Thursday once the, the kind of legal arguments at the end of the hearing had taken place. And it, and it might well be that we get a decision before the Reading fixture at the weekend, but it just depends on how quickly the, the panel, three-man panel who are hearing it, are, are able to turn it around. He is in difficulty because... Lekko is obviously maintaining the claim that he was racially abused. Macaulay Bond, um, the Charlton striker, is supporting Lekko's claim and is, as far as we're aware, the only other person who claims to have heard what was said. Kassir denies it and has done from the start, but there is no other Leeds player who heard the comments or could say that, that nothing was said. Uh, the referee didn't hear them, none of the assistants or the fourth official were aware either. And as much as there is a little bit of camera footage, I believe from caught by a, a supporter behind the goal, again, it's not conclusive. And it, and it won't decide one way or the other whether the world whether Casilla did make racist comments towards Leco. There's a lot of support for Casilla. I'm told that Eddie Nketiah will attend the hearing. He was obviously on loan from Arsenal and, and played in that game. There are, I think, six players from Leeds who are going down to give evidence about the game and, and also about Casilla's character. But he has written statements from Real Madrid about his behaviour in the time when he was at, at the Bernabeu. I think I'm right in saying that Kamar Roof has also provided a statement, again, just about his, his character and, and, and how Roof found him in the period when they played together at Leeds. And also the support from Thomas um, Incono, the old um, Cameroon keeper who was his goalkeeping coach at Espanyol in, in Spain. So there are a lot of people who will defend Casillas' background and, and will say that they're not aware at all of, of any racist incidents in, in his entire time in football. But it won't change the fact that Leco and Macaulay Bond are basically backing up the, the suggestion that there the were racist comments and they're saying that, that they heard them. Uh, they heard them and, and on that basis and because the FA does deal in balance of probability rather than kind of indisputable proof, it's highly likely that he will be found guilty of this and, and he will serve the suspension. And just to reiterate a point we made last week when we spoke about this is that it's taken so long because of the amount of character witnesses that have been compiled and obviously you had the transfer window in January and all these different moving parts have conspired to make it a much longer process than they might have wanted Well people have been saying to me recently that it looks like the authorities delaying it because Casilla is out of form and that the longer they can leave him in the team just to to kind of derail leads Mad, madness better. isn't it yes yeah well you know paranoia prevails but it the one of the reasons for the delay has been the amount of paperwork that leads have provided for this and it's taken a long time to go through it all and you also have to remember that if you've got six players from Leeds going and you've got Leco going from West Brom and Macaulay Bond going from Charlton and then Niketia in, in amongst Arsenal's fixtures there's a lot of coordinating to do to get everybody there on the on the right day and, and for enough time um, for the, the hearing to conclude and, and to take place so there's been nothing nothing untoward behind this but it's fair to say that it has taken an awful long time to, to resolve for something which doesn't beyond the claims of Bond and Leco doesn't actually have any clear evidence and words that will send a shudder up the spine of many Leeds fans, Roque Jr. Quick word on Roque Jr., please. Yes, my colleague Jack Lang, um, I'm away this week, but uh, so to speak, but he's um, he's done a piece on Roque Jr. this week. He, he, he said he, he was just fascinated by the, the background to how did this guy, this Bottle Cup winner, wind up at Leeds at a time when Leeds seemed to be kind of spiralling little by little towards relegation. Why was he so appallingly bad? What happened afterwards? What does Roque Jr. make of it? So he's spoken to, I, I went for a, to have a chat with Eddie Gray about it. He's spoken to Kevin Blackwell and, and other players just to, to find out a little bit about what went on. And they'll kind of say the same thing, which, which is that he was a terribly nice guy and you knew that there must be some 
high level talent there because it's pretty much impossible to win the World Cup without being a proficient footballer but at Leeds it was almost impossible to see and I think the feeling was that he was in the wrong country in a league that just didn't suit him at all got to the point of wondering what on earth he was doing here never found his form and and as his performances got worse kind of realised that he was (laughs) <laughs> kind of realised that he was going to be on the way out and, and that it was never going to go well for him here. So a strange story all round, but it'll be a, it'll be a good read. Yeah, a guy, he always just looked confused, did Rocky Jr. I think he's confused and I think the people you speak to are kind of confused about how he turned up here and actually whether that ever happened or whether it was just kind of figment of, of everybody's imagination. And it is all the more confusing because there have been some terrible players who have come through Leeds and, and if you look at the backgrounds, didn't necessarily look like they would be anything other than terrible. But he was somebody who should have been a, a comprehensive centre-back and, and should certainly have been good enough. And, and Eddie Gray kind of said, I, I just never saw it in him. Eddie obviously came in midway through the, the 03-04 season after Peter Reid was sacked and um, I was caretaker to the end of the season when, when Leeds got relegated and never played him once. And I think just looked at him in training and thought, I just can't rely on this guy. I, he, he just isn't going to be good enough. And it's it's asking for trouble if I play him. And obviously the, the team went down regardless. But I think his point of view from having watched him was that it just wasn't worth the risk. Two goals against Man United though. Well, there is that, isn't there? Yeah, but it, it's funny. I can't remember the last time I spoke to any, anybody about Rocky Jr. and said, two goals against Man United. <laughs> it's one of those, to be a World Cup winner and then be behind Stephen Caldwell and Michael Jubry in the pecking order is, is quite the fall, isn't it? I think so. Um, and and I, think, I think Rocky Jr. found the whole thing completely bizarre as well. I know Jack was trying to get hold of him and was, was hoping to speak to him about it. And I imagine, like Robka and others, he's probably just tried to push it into that corner of the mind where everything gets gets forgotten but a weird story all round and as I say when when I spoke to Eddie he said you knew he was a World Cup winner so you knew he must be a good footballer must have been a good footballer but you you watched him train and you just thought this is unbelievable I mean Eddie didn't use these words but the old kind of competition winner joke you know nobody could understand how it was that this World Cup winner had come here and was so bad one to watch then, Phil. Let's put your legendary prediction powers to the test yet again and who or what is going to be making the headlines this coming week. Reading and Borough on the horizon? Uh, well, not a prediction, although a bit like Jansen, I hope I don't say this and then he doesn't play, but Cleek on Saturday will be up to 82 consecutive league games. Don't which, do this, Phil. Which takes him past. Don't do this, I know, Phil. I know. Mind you, I was talking about Jack Harrison's fitness and saying he looks like he's he's never going to get injured and he's kind of made it through the night, hasn't he, so far? <laughs> uh, but uh, So 82 games, uh, league games back-to-back, which, and Moscow will be good for this one, but which I think eclipses the run of Gordon Strachan back in 89, oh, 90 and 91. Well, they tell me that Strachan played 81 games in a row with a bad back and I was looking it was the the game that ended that run was 2-0 defeat to Southampton at the start of March in 1991 and and I can only assume that after that ridiculous FA Cup tie against Arsenal the the four games that Wilkinson thought even this guy needs a rest so I don't know if Strachan was injured or if he he was just left out of the squad or or whatever else but it was 81 games up to that point Cleek will hit 82 if he starts against Reading which is quite some run thank you Matthias Cleek it was memorable farewell (laughs) yes (laughs) off to Colorado you go (laughs) right and Middlesbrough Again, I'm going to be fascinated to watch Woodgate because he's under pressure again. And I, I kept a close eye on the dugout when they were at Ellen Road. I was actually across the other side of the ground. I was doing a piece on um, Nikki, um, Nikki Allen, the, the lady who comes with a guide dog. But I was watching 
Woodgate and I was watching Robbie Keane and, and others and just interested to see, given that they were under so much pressure, the way in which they handled the game. And, and there did seem to be very sort of hands-off approach of watching it all go on in front of them and, and not really much idea of how to sort it out. And clearly he's had a good spell, Woodgate, when he, he picked up that Manager of the Month award, but they do seem to be struggling again and, and they do seem to be in reverse gear. So again, it, this is a difficult game for him, difficult fixture. I'll, um, I'll watch him with interest and if they do lose, I'll be fascinated to see whether whether he rolls out the old Leeds and Bielsa fantastic and I hope they go up line which is all an absolute guaranteed winner in Middlesbrough goes down really well doesn't it uh, for ad free podcasts make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app 40% discount if you use the code Leeds Pod. we'll catch up with you next week see you in a bit